Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I'm your host, Andreas Kasai, and today our focus is on the youth mental health crisis affecting young people from the largest ethnic or racial minority group in America, Hispanic Americans. Joining us for this conversation on how behavioral health professionals can step up to address the unmet mental health needs of the largest and fastest growing youth populations in the country is SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association alumna, Dr. Daisy Lara. Dr. Lara, welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers. And if I could start by asking you to please introduce yourself to our listeners if you could give us a little bit about your background and the community that you grew up in and how that has influenced your trajectory as a psychiatric mental health nurse. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Daisy. I am Hispanic. My mother is Puerto Rican. My dad is from Dominican Republic. I had a great upbringing with supportive parents who supported me and empowered me to always, you know, go for what I wanted as far as educational. I went to private school, lived in a suburban area most of my life. I was one of the only Hispanics in the room. That's always been the situation I've always had to deal with. But it's also made me pretty powerful as far as I know that I can do whatever goal I have in mind. I know I can accomplish it. I don't know. That sounds weird, but... <laughs> I always said, doesn't matter what room I go into, I'm pretty comfortable. I'm I'm comfortable if I'm at school or if I'm at in my own community. We often talk about nursing as a field that is dominated by white women. Was that ever an issue? Did you ever come up against, you know, pushback because of your Hispanic identity? Um, yeah, I felt it along every aspect of my life. And more so now when I look back, I think I wasn't aware that I was going through it at the moment. But as far as like 2006, I believe I graduated nursing school. I was the only Hispanic nurse that worked at the hospital. And that was difficult, proving that you knew what you were doing with colleagues and then you have those that look like you and they have other positions, uh, you know, ancillary positions in the hospital where it's housekeeping or them looking at you like you think you're too good. So it's like, I'm not supported either way. <laughs> so that was the beginning. But as time progressed and more and more Hispanic nurses um, came in. And when I say many, I'm talking like two, because I don't think, I don't know that many. Now I do, because I'm an, a member of the National Association of Hispanic Nurses. But prior to that, it was pretty lonely. But I will say, I was blessed to have so many colleagues. They're, they're not Hispanic, but to this day, they're like one of my bestest friends. And why did you pick psychiatric mental health nursing? I love learning about why people act the way they do. I've always been fascinated by that. I have a degree in psychology, and then I went into nursing school after. So I've always had that passion. And then when I went into nursing, I realized, wow, like nursing is psychiatry. You don't realize it until you get there <laughs> that, you know, people are very vulnerable. They're depressed, anxious, and uncertain about their future. 
lot of substance use, especially in the, the unit I worked in was cardiac unit. We saw a lot of that. So it's all one, mental and physical. It has to be balanced. My nephew, which is my brother's son, he's the whole reason why I created Resilio Mental Health Solutions. And if you look at the name Resilio, it means resilience in Italian and in Spanish. And my nephew passed in 2018 from what we think was a suicide, but it's not certain. So he was 12, didn't have the support faced a lot of barriers, losing a parent at a very young age. And so he drives me to help this age group. It's personal. Yes, very personal reason and definitely lights the flame for moving forward. Thank you for sharing that, Doctor. We're talking about a community that is evolving quite rapidly, right? There's immigration, is there's a constant flow of, of, of people coming in. Is there a disconnect between the expectations, this dream of the American dream and how things might be when people get here and then things are not quite like that. And then when there's a clash in what people expect and the reality and the support systems are not there, that things just break down. Is that something that's happening? I think so. I think so. A lot of people will say how awesome they feel when they go back. Those that have the opportunity and the ability to go back and visit, that they feel stress-free. They're able to eat their foods. They feel better. The foods they're eating, the environment is not as stressful, not as toxic. Here, all, you, all we do is work. That's you know what they say. All we do here is work. We don't have time for ourselves. So yeah, I think the American dream is not what they think. I think that that applies for all immigrant communities. It's almost like they're always grieving. Loss of life, the, the regular life, loss of friendships. Like you said, support. You know, if you move constantly, losing friends constantly, losing home. So there's a lot of loss and grief. And the adolescents hear that too. They hear the sacrifice that their parents have made they feel like their parents have sacrificed themselves for them. And it's almost a sense of guilt. Like now I have to do better. I have to be better because they gave all that up for me. Dr. Lara, various studies have determined that Hispanic youth experience the highest levels of depressive symptoms. 22% in 2017 relative to other racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. today, and the second highest rate of suicide after Native American Pacific Islander youth. So I want you to help us understand what is happening. How do you see this manifesting in the places that you have lived and worked? So I remember in preschool, I, w I did go to an immigrant program at one of our local schools in my community. At the time, there weren't that many Hispanic families in the area compared to now. But I think that was instrumental for me and my family. I'm jumping into this because a lot of the teens now, you don't see these community-based 
programs assisting families. And that's where I'm going with this. A lot of the teens that I see currently, their parents both work, they're used primarily by themselves. So there's lack of support and lack of providers, mental health providers, just providers in general. How is mental health perceived in the Hispanic community? And how is that a hindrance to getting uh, treatment or for people to just live healthy lives? Yeah, I think that mental health, people aren't aware that they're depressed. A lot of people come and they're like, oh, I just, I feel tired. I don't have the motivation or energy, but they don't realize that they're depressed. So that's why it's so important to, to listen number one, and to also ask the appropriate questions. Some people don't, they're depressed, they just don't even realize it. They have normalized the systemic racism that they go through, all of the barriers that they face as part of life. They look at themselves and they're like, oh, everybody's going through that. You know, but as a population, we do face a lot of that, but, we need somebody to talk to. We need professionals to talk to. And when people come to you and, or to other providers and they go through the assessments and they are diagnosed as having either anxiety or depression, how do they take that? At first, there, some of them get upset. They're like, what do you mean? I thought it was, that's just normal. And I'm like, no, there is treatment. You know, you can get better. You don't have to live this way. And sometimes, you know, as the provider, the first thing that I have to be empathetic, right? Empathy is huge. And sometimes when I share my own experiences, they understand like, oh, you you went to, through a lot of the same things as I did. And I have to personalize it for them, for them to understand like that is trauma. Cultural, if you will, uh, viewpoints on mental health. Is that a barrier in itself? Like if somebody's if you say that somebody has a mental health problem or a mental health challenge, is, is that seen as some sort of failing or weakness? Yes. Yes, it is. It, it is viewed as a weakness and it's frowned upon. And so that's where the education is so important. And has that changed, do you think, from when you were first starting and until now? I think so. And what's changing it? More people are talking about it. I think that COVID also brought things up to the forefront that everybody's struggling. You know, everybody was struggling. The uncertainty, everybody felt that during that time. For instance, if I talk to somebody and I get through them, I'm like, talk to your family, share this story, share how you're doing better. The constant communication is going to help other people come out and say that they're struggling and not deal with it alone. Are people recognizing now that they might need mental health support and are they coming for that directly without having been referred by other um, physicians? Very few. I think most of my patients are referred either by the school district, the counselors at the schools, or pediatricians. So now they're starting to screen at the doctor's offices and they're referring. And then also the school district is a little bit more aware than they were in the past. In this season of mental health trailblazers, we're looking at what's been described as a youth mental health crisis in America. So it's happening across all demographic groups, all racial ethnic groups. Some of the reasons might be similar and, and some of the 
underlying factors or supporting factors are similar for everybody, including the impact of social media and all these things. But I'm wondering if there are particular nuances that people who are looking into these different um, racial and ethnic groups and how mental health is manifesting there, that they should be looking at when it comes to young people from Hispanic backgrounds. And here, I want to recognize that the Hispanic community is not a monolith. There are different backgrounds, different immigration statuses. There are people who've been here for generations and, and then first-generation immigrants as well. And then, you know, there are other maybe subgroups that might be more vulnerable. But are there specific things that people should be looking for in terms of either signs, symptoms, how you diagnose and treat uh, when it comes to young people from Hispanic backgrounds? Yeah, so definitely some of the signs and symptoms are, you know, failing school, missing school, substance use, vaping, self-harm. Those are some signs. Isolation, you know, if they're more withdrawn from their peers. I know a lot of my adolescents work. Their parents work and they also work, you know, at the mushroom farms. They also work on the weekends. So while other teens are having time with their friends, they're working 16 hours over a weekend. So you might see them feeling, you know, more tired. Are you seeing more demand? Like, are you getting more and more young people coming to you? Yes. Most of my practice is adolescents. Wow. What kind of challenges are the young people facing? Depression, anxiety, substance use, marijuana, vaping, opiates are also a, a huge issue. And then there's insomnia. So those are the big issues that I see currently. And do they come voluntarily or are they compelled to come? You know what? Sometimes, especially my Hispanic patients, I will say they want to come. The teens want. And most of the times the parents don't support them until I sit with them and explain things a little bit. And a lot of them then will recognize, oh, that's what they're dealing with when I bring it up to the attention. Sometimes it's just having a mediator, right? The conflict between parent and child. You have a child who's been a parent for most of their life and now all of a sudden, it's like this dichotomous existence and there's a conflict between the parent and the child. Sometimes just having somebody there to advocate for them is enough. Do you think you being of Hispanic background makes a difference? 100%. I think I can relate to what they go through. And I also think that they can trust me. They trust me, bottom line. Now I'm thinking back to a conversation that we had on this podcast with another MFP. She was a fellow then, she's an alumna now, Dr. Griselle Estrada. And she spoke about this thing called confianza and how important it is, in fact, necessary. It's like it, it, it's important to have this trusting relationship between you as the care provider and the person that is coming in to see you. There aren't enough Hispanic or Spanish-speaking behavioral health providers in the workforce right now, which is partly why we at the MFP are trying to recruit and support the training of advanced practice psychiatric mental health nurses. But until that deficit is filled, we're going to have to rely on non-Hispanic behavioral health professionals to respond, right? So what are your suggestions for improving the way that they can provide these mental health services? How can they build that 
confianza. If they could just find one common characteristic or one way to connect to them. A lot of people say, well, I don't know how to speak Spanish. And I'm like, well, just say hola. Just make the attempt to connect with them. That right there allows them to be a little bit closer and be a little bit more themselves and more authentic. That's a way to build confianza. It's all about trust. They know that you're somebody who's trying to understand them and that you're trying to help. With African-American youth, especially with African-American men, the way that African-Americans are diagnosed uh, can be very different from the way that Caucasian-Americans are diagnosed. And that can result in different types of treatment. If anger issues or if that's given us a criminal bent, then you know you might end up in prison somewhere, incarcerated, uh, rather than getting treatment for mental health. Does that happen in Hispanic communities as well? Yes. It's always good to ask, right? Never assume. Like I said, the Hispanic population is so complicated, so complex that you're not going to find one that's the same or has the same barriers or same background. Or... So always ask the patient. If you have a question, if you're not sure, it's better to ask so you can get a clear picture of the social um, barriers they're dealing with. Because assumptions lead to incorrect diagnoses. Uh, absolutely. Uh, have you seen this happen? Like, do you have examples? Oh, yeah. So when I worked in the inpatient psychiatric unit, a patient was admitted who didn't speak English. The patient had no idea why he was there. None. So he was placed on um, a voluntary admission, but he was not suicidal. He wasn't a harm to himself. He was depressed. So he shouldn't have been admitted. I mean, you're putting somebody in a lockdown facility. So I worked the next day and talked to him and, you know, we cleared everything and involved family and he, he was depressed, but not to that level of care. Like he basically needed to be connected with an outpatient provider that could start medications on him. And what would have happened if you, as a person who could uh, empathize, were not there? He could have been there several days. And sometimes when you're in that level of distress, someone can take it out of context and the person may appear as if they're paranoid or a completely wrong symptom when in fact they're just anxious because they didn't understand why they were being held there. In healthcare, it's imperative that patients are understood. So one thing I'm going to come back to is we've got this rising, growing population, a very young population, and then the rates of mental health uh, problems or challenges is increasing. Do you think that Healthcare is taking this problem seriously. I think healthcare is doing what they can do, but I think we have a long way to go. And how do you think nurses in particular can play a, a role? I think nurses, you know, one of the things we do is advocate. I think we need to advocate 
when we see something that's incorrect, we need to listen to the patient. And if you're unable to communicate to them or, or get through, find a way. We have to stop and, and, and speak up. I guess the reward for me is when I look back at my, like when I grew up, I can say that I never was, never had suicidal thoughts or anything like that. But I feel like I had mentorship and, and people to support me along the way. There were times in my life I didn't have anybody. And that's the person I aim to be. I want to be the person I didn't have back then. So when it comes to adolescence, I want to be able to help them, mentor them. We have to nourish children when they're young. Some kids don't have that at all. So even if they're not your own children, an adolescent that you come in contact with. In moving forward as we look to the future, uh, again, this is a growing population. Uh, so far, the trends are not positive at this point. What are the consequences? Like, What are your fears or worries, if you will, when you think about what's happening now within the Hispanic community? I just fear that many people, people in power, talking about like politicians and large organizations are not focusing on this population because they're not part of this population. When in fact, if you don't help this population, it will trickle down to you, okay? Because we're one community and that's how you have to look at it. Because it's affecting certain cultures, it affects all of us. These are the kids that go to school with your kids. So we have to help. We have to come together and, and help them. What gives me hope is that I'm hoping that people are listening. Now we're talking more. There's podcasts just like this. There's organizations like NON that wasn't around when I was in nursing school that are empowering other people, you know, to come into the profession, to become nurses, to help others. I think right now we're we're doing pretty good. I think we're, you know, people see the amount of work that we do. Nurses, I love the nursing profession. You know, we have nurse educators, nurse leaders, entrepreneurs. So I'm super excited. There's no other profession I would be. One of our challenges at the MFP is uh, recruiting enough psychiatric mental health nurses uh, from various backgrounds, including Hispanic nurses. So do you have any recommendations for us and for the, uh, you know, for the wider nursing sector? How can we get more nurses interested in psychiatric mental health? Well, I think you guys are doing great. Actually, I really do. But I will say, I didn't find out about the MFP program until my last year of my doctorate program. Wow. Yes. And I found NON a year before that. And for our listeners, if you could tell them what NON is. So NON is the National Association of Hispanic Nurses. It's a national organization, and I am the immediate past president of the Philadelphia chapter. And, and how did you find out about NON and about the MFP? 
part of my doctorate work was to find out what resources were out there for nurses, Hispanic nurses. And I was like, well, there aren't any. And they're like, no, there has to be. So after like much research, I found both of these organizations and I immediately joined. I joined before even going to the meeting. I was so excited. And then I flew out to Puerto Rico and I went to their conference. And my life has changed since then. I have met the most empowering nurses throughout the country, leaders, um, and I look up to them. Um, and I think that's what's so important. If you don't have that, you don't realize you can. Yeah, so do you do mentoring? Do you go out into the community and speak about your work? So I actually do career days, <laughs> elementary, middle, and high school students. I have students coming in in high school who are thinking about either medicine or becoming a nurse, psychiatrist. They come and, and they you know shadow me for a week. I've had students here in high school. And then of course I precept psychiatric nurse practitioners who are currently, you know, during their clinicals, they come to the office and they they and I precept them. So I try to I do my best to mentor back and give back. That's the only way that in 30 years, 20 years, we'll see more and more diverse providers. Going back to then your education, your time going through school, when you think about the training that you received there, are there elements that you think were missed that if now are included would help nurses who are coming through, uh, especially psychiatric mental health nurses, respond better to the needs of Hispanic youth? Most of my childhood and even like in college, nobody really talked about that at all. We're in nursing school. I don't remember it being discussed. We probably had a very short period of time that we covered mental health in nursing school. And I don't think much of it was focused on Hispanic and minority needs in mental health. So like imagining the curriculum now, like would there have been a, a course that uh, you might have? Oh yeah, I think that would be fantastic. Like how, what would that course look like? I think that describing the history I mean, you have to know the history to know what you, you're dealing with, you know? Right. So I think if we incorporate a history in general into our curriculum, that's going to help any medical provider later on, right? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think that diving in and educating that there are different cultures within Hispanic population. A lot of people don't even know that discussions about race and how it's different than nationality and things like that. I don't think people understand that. And that's okay because we're not really taught that. But not having that does impact the way that you can respond to different populations when you're actually in the workforce, right? Right. Going back to this whole issue of youth mental health crisis, and now we've got the uh, U.S. government from all levels, from the White House, the U.S. Surgeon General, saying that there is a crisis and we have to respond. We need to do more research. We need to, to act now. 
What do you think they need to do to make sure that this growing population, as you said, this population that is in the community, that if something happens to one person, it doesn't stay there, it, it has a ripple effect that affects everybody. What needs to be done that isn't being done now, focusing on the Hispanic community? Access. Access to care. Access to care. How would we improve that? It's complicated. It, it really is. Because there's not enough providers, regardless if they're Hispanic or not. Spanish-speaking or not, there is not enough mental health providers. So whether it's funding to assist individuals to go to school, to become, to further their education, to allow more people to be in what MF, what the MFP is doing. Mm-hmm. More of that, you know, funding to pay for the treatments for the adolescents. I think that would be huge. Mm-hmm. A lot of my teens don't have insurance, mental health coverage. Some are undocumented, don't have insurance. And then some insurance doesn't include mental health services. So their co-pays may be very high, large deductibles. These are the barriers that they deal with. Um, So if there was some type of funding, that would be ideal. I think that community-based interventions are going to be huge. You know, human interaction is crucial for all of us. And just having that extra support, whether creating clubs for moms and then discussing the uh, the mental health crisis with teens, with the mothers, um, bringing it to them and them not even realizing that they're getting psychoeducation, <laughs> you know, making it fun. That decreases some of the stigma because they're going to come because they're going to talk about it's a support group for moms. It's not even about their teens. Have you seen this working? I have seen some organizations doing um, like support groups or Zoom meetings, things like that. Um, I think it works. We just have to have more of it. And the problem is a lot of these parents work very long hours and can't come. So finding the solution is going to (laughs) be difficult. But I think that when it works, it works, whether it's maybe after coordinating with a church because usually on Sunday you know they go to church maybe doing like a group event or educational speaking event after something like that Um, I think those would be beneficial do you have a call to action for the Hispanic community for parents if your children say that they need help take them seriously look for the signs the signs that they're calling out for help um, and try to get them help. Um, and then for providers, I would say um, to listen and be more empathetic. Yeah, but hypothetically, if you have a young person who's going to school and might be working uh, uh, as a side job supporting family, you know, is, is providing translation uh, support for their family and is going through all of these different things, typically where would that young person, if they did feel a need to, Uh, reach out to somebody for help, who do you think they would be most likely to reach out to? 
probably somebody who they trust, they might not tell their parents. They might be telling a teacher, you know, the teachers see them all day. So do we need to work now more with teachers to get them to be empathetic? Like, what is your experience with teachers in the in the education system and how they are responding to Hispanic youth? I think teachers do a fantastic job. I think that just like nurses, they were slammed the last couple of years, um, a lot of stressors, and they're getting most of it, like they're dealing with it. I know that a lot of um, school districts are offering like mental health first aid for the students and for employees. And I think that's great. I think they're starting to roll out these educational programs, um, but maybe having more counselors that can be of assistance. Because I know a lot of schools may only have like five counselors. I think if they're there to assist the teachers, that would be ideal. But I think, yeah, the collaboration is is important. Right. I'm imagining that teachers would be, especially if they're able to create a good rapport with all of their students, they might be that trusted adult that somebody could go to. Maybe having more nurses in, in the school setting might also be another way that the nursing can respond. But I do agree that, you know, getting into that school environment, mm-hmm. maybe having the screenings at schools. A hundred percent. I thought I, I mentioned that um, to one of my colleagues that having like every school, every high school should have a psychiatric nurse practitioner in the building. These kids that are not being seen by a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner for months, they should be able to see the, you know, the psychiatric nurse practitioner that's employed by the school district. Right. To bridge them until their appointment. Do school districts have psychiatric mental health nurses? Not, not in my area. Wow. And I think it's, it's important. That person can be, could collaborate with the new provider can collaborate with the teachers like that's the mediator <laughs> between right. the you know the parents and everything so i think that would be the answer i hope would be something that they could fund and and the future dr daisy lara what does the future hold for you I hope that my practice can grow and reach more individuals in need. I hope that a lot of the barriers that I'm dealing with as a business and business owner and entrepreneur kind of settle down so I'm able to help even more. Yeah, they're the big ones. <laughs> it must be really frustrating to see that there is the need. There are people calling out this need. There is a population that is recognizing that it needs these services and would love to access them. Um, And, you know, everybody is ringing an alarm bell. But then the things that you need to uh, make it all happen to grease the wheels, if you will, is just not there. So I think it's a clear call to put your money where your mouth is. (laughs) (laughs) One group of young people that I saw reflected in the work that you've done and the things that you are passionate about is also working with the LGBTQ adolescent community. Can you tell me what are the particular vulnerabilities that Hispanic 
LGBTQ young people might be facing and again your recommendations for how nurses can better provide care for them. So acceptance. That's all I can say. Being non-judgmental and being accepting. Hearing the teens out. You know, because a lot of people say, um, you know, I just don't understand. And a part of understanding is is learning from them. And I'm here to advocate for them and here to support them. Many times I'm in the room when they talk to their parents. And that's, if that's all I do, that's enough. Right? It, you don't have to, I don't feel like we're ever going to know every aspect of it that they deal with because I don't, I, I, I tell them that all the time, I don't know what you're going through, but I want to be supportive. And if I could just get them to, I mean, that's probably the, one of the most stressful things is disclosing how they identify to a parent or a guardian. So just being a support person, listening to them. I think as an ally, they just want somebody that will accept them for who they are and who they can be themselves around. Like I tell them, you don't have to change when you come in here, just be yourself. And that goes for all my, all my patients. I think it's important as a provider, I'm constantly educating myself on other cultures. I love history. I love learning about other cultures, other countries, other languages, foods. I try to learn as much as I can about other people because that's what my job entails. I try to understand what other people are going through, what their life looks like. So I think as an effective psychiatric nurse practitioner, I'm not saying that we have to agree with it, but you need to be aware of it and not judge somebody for who they are. Absolutely. Yeah. And keep whatever biases exactly. you have, recognize your own biases, and don't let those get in the way exactly. of prov providing the care that you need. Well, on that note, Dr. Daisy Lara, thank you very much for giving me all of your time and sharing your precious knowledge. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting underrepresented communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.